0: Okay, Luke 15, could you take your Bible and go there, Luke 15, it's amazing how many times when, uh, when something goes wrong, how we are so quick to think, ah, God's against me, <laughs> and actually like we looked at on Sunday, it may be God going after Jonah. <laughs> So I'm I'm actually sending a whale. That's actually what I'm doing for you. I'm not against you. I'm actually for you. We looked at Sunday uh, morning at the topic, really trying to understand not just what God does, though certainly we'd looked at that, but understanding who God is. And I made that point several times, at least I tried to make that point several times, because it's a very, very important truth to come to. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, I was preaching at a camp where I did an eight-part series on discovering who God is. Now, as an evangelist, I don't do series. We do topical messages and things like that, but the Lord led on, on that. And so tonight I want to continue in that, and tonight looking at a parable that we touched briefly on Sunday, but to go and expound it a little bit farther, discovering not just what God does, but who God is. Of course, on Sunday we discovered that God is a pursuing God, He's a seeking God, He's is, he is looking for you. In fact, and I can't remember exactly who it was that came and spoke to me after Sunday morning's message, you can wave at me if you're in here, and I'm not... Uh, Someone spoke to me out on Sunday morning's message and she said to me, she said, you know, that radically changes how I pray. For people, okay, that's where you are. You're wearing something different tonight, so it's hard to remember who it was. Uh, Changes how I prayed, and that was that was a fascinating application I had not thought through. But if you know that God is pursuing someone that you've been praying for, it put wings to your prayer because you realize you are entering into something that God is already doing. You're not convincing him. You're not saying, "Hey, can I get your attention to work on this person? I I like him. Could you like him?" No, God is saying, "Would you start praying?" Because I'm already working. I want to get a hold of your attention so you enter into what I'm doing. It changes how you pray. In fact, I was talking to my dad today and he asked me, he said, would you enter into prayer with me for a man that he's been seeking the Lord for, for a number of years, a man who, uh, he said, if, if he wasn't for his children in his life, he would commit suicide. He said, God has brought him so close, but he's not ready to trust Jesus yet. He said, God's pursuing him. Pray with me that God would continue. So what I'm doing is I'm entering into the journey that God has already started. If you'd like to be a part of what God's doing, you can start praying for people because God is Pursuing Now tonight, we're, we, uh, we, we touched on this parable in Luke chapter 15 and that is of the prodigal son. And tonight I want to spend a little more time on it. If you're familiar with those stories, and I mentioned this on Sunday, you have a trilogy of parables, three parables together, all teaching really the same truth. That is the lost coin, the lost uh, sheep, and then the lost son. The lost coin, the lady that she has some coins loses one, searches the house until she finds it because she has to find it. The lost sheep or the shepherd of the hundred loses one. He, he sets the 99 aside, says, I've got to find that last one. And then the final of the three stories is that of the prodigal son. That's what we've heard it named as, or could be also called the, law, the story of the lost son. And here Jesus goes into a greater detail in expounding this, this uh, parable. And of course, you know, there's much to the second half where he's dealing with the older brother. And really, that is part of the main thrust in Jesus giving this parable. Is he's speaking to the Pharisees and saying, you are the older brother. And for those of us who live in a conservative uh, Christianity, we need to take to mind and to heart that sometimes we can be a lot more like the Pharisees than we realize, and we would be helped by listening to that parable. But what we're going to look at tonight is the first half. And so let's read it here together, Uh, starting in verse 11. The scripture says this, so Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Verse 17 And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thine hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son but the father." said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Oh, what a joyful story, is it not? It's known as the, the story of the prodigal son. Do you know what the word prodigal means? I asked it to a group of teenagers last week. I said, do you know what prodigal means? And one says, uh, someone who runs away. Well, maybe we would think that because of the story here, but the word prodigal actually means to lavishly, excessively pour out onto something. So in this case, it was finances. If I was going to put that into, uh, into a sentence today, I could say, uh, you know, the Amandis had us over for dinner and, and Miss Cassandra, she made an apple pie and my slice of pie, she was prodigal with the cream. Meaning, she was lavish, excessive, so much that I said, this is a good piece of pie. I mean, this is what we're talking about. I look at that and say, there's so much cream here. The idea is it's just an excessive amount. The story is known to be the prodigal son because of his excessive spending of his father's wealth, but really this story could be called the prodigal father because here we see an excessive, lavish forgiveness. Tonight, I want to bring a message to us that we would discover that forgiveness is not just what God does. Forgiveness is who he is. It's his nature. It's his very being. If you were to strip away everything from what is Jesus Christ, what will flow from him is forgiveness. Look with me in the very first verses here of this story. Jesus gives us a glimpse into the family situation here. And I want us to notice the crime of this boy. Now if you're familiar with this story, you've read it a few times, maybe for at least for me as growing up in a Christian home, hearing the story, sometimes it misses me the significance but the scripture here reveals that you've got a father with two boys. Two boys that are of age, two boys that are grown. We don't know exactly how old they are but I can imagine they're at least 18, probably 21, maybe older because at these two boys, the younger of them views himself as old enough and mature enough that he can go out into the world, make his way. So if he was living in America we would say he was probably 18 or maybe 21 and looking at the lifestyle he lived probably at least 21 uh, or older so that they're not young children and, and the boys come to him and the younger boy says to the father in verse 12 the younger of them said to his father father give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me and he divideth to them his living now again we're all familiar with this but really what's happening is is a very, is a great injustice and an act of incredible disrespect to the Father. Now we know this, but at least for me in reading this, I don't always get the significance. It would be like the situation I was told of recently. There's a a pastor in Minnesota who's, he's an older man, has a bunch of children all grown most of them all married at least and and every once in a while this pastor from Minnesota goes on fishing trips to Canada maybe once a year he'll go on a on a trip uh, to fish in Canada and one of his boys called him one of his estranged boys he does not have a good relationship with this boy his son called him and said dad you need to stop going on those fishing trips you're spending my inheritance Now you think of that and you say, whoa, this kid's getting big for his britches. And we in our culture said, man, that's disrespectful. To this father, it would have been much, much more. But it would have been the same idea. The boy comes to dad and says, dad, I know the the wealth that you've gained, it's coming to me. And I'm not waiting until you die. I can't wait that long. I want my goods now. Now, if you were the father and if I was the father, how would you respond? See, we know the reason Jesus is giving this this parable here is it's giving a very clear understanding, a theological treatise on who our father is. And this father, who is demonstrating the heavenly father, the father looks at the son and gives what he asks. Now, I find that fascinating because when I look at this situation, again, it's a parable, so we don't know all the historical background. There isn't historical background because it is a story. But I can imagine this father is not surprised by the actions of his boy. If the son is, let's just say he's 21, if the son is 21 and he's come to the dad, dad is not all of a sudden one day said, oh my, you're 21 years old and you're selfish. I didn't realize that. No, he's watched the boy for the last, whatever, two decades. He's watched him grow. He's seen him in the field. He's seen how he's treated the servants. He's seen how he's treated his older brother. And the father knows this boy is heading for trouble. There's something not right here. Um, And maybe the father has has, uh, tried to work with him, but all we know is that the boy selfishly comes to the father. The dad would have known the character, would have known the track record, would have known if I give this money to him, I'll never see it again. If I give this inheritance to him, he will, knowing the character of this boy, I know he's going to spend it. There is no chance that we'll ever be able to invest that again. If I give it to him, it's gone. And the father gives it anyways. And as you read the rest of the story, you know the heart of the father. Imagine this. The father is giving the goods, knowing it will be lost, and with every intent to take the boy back when he comes. Do you see the heart of this father? And yet the selfish nature of the boy. Taking the goods, and there he leaves, leaves the father. Verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey to a far country, and there... Just as Dad predicted, just as was his MO, there wasted his substance with riotous living. Of course, I don't think I have to expound much on this passage for those of us in this room, but we all know what the world does with people who give themselves to the world they waste the person, and the person is wasted. And everything, all the inheritance that this young man had as he went out into the world, he lost it all and there was no getting it back because the world takes, the devil takes, and he never returns. In fact, he charges far more the price than Jesus ever charged and he, de- he charges with interest. I heard a story not long ago of a couple who had grown up in California. The uh, husband was a part of a, uh, a recording. He, was in a, he, he played trombone in an orchestra who would record large movie soundtracks. The wife, she worked for a uh, a, a large um, stage production there, uh, doing. I don't know if they were they were, they were some of them were musicals. And it wasn't Broadway because it was out in California, but she was doing all these big stage performances. And uh, her backstory is pretty incredible. She had once been a student at Bible college, married a preacher, and then divorced him for her desire to be on California she marries this man who's now a trombone player and there they continued their life of sin she's saved he's not saved and he said his testimony is unbelievable he said for 20 years he said I didn't wake up at night or I didn't go to bed at night and wake up in the morning he said for 20 years I passed out and came to that's the life I lived He said, we were in a recording studio and the guys were talking about drugs. The way they talked about it was supposed to be this most incredible thing. He said, they started passing around cocaine in the recording studio. He said, they had a mirror with eight lines of cocaine on it and they'd pass it around. You'd sniff a line and you'd pass it on to the next guy. It was free because you were recording for the studio. He said, we recorded everything. We recorded all kinds of stuff. And there, it's getting passed around. He said, so I tried it. He said, for six months, I was strung out on cocaine. If you're familiar with cocaine, and again, I'm not a, I don't know a lot about drugs, but I do know it is a numbing agency. He said, what it would do to me is I would sniff that cocaine. He said, it would begin to numb that my, my nasal passage. It would numb my face. He said, I'm a trombone player. I have to have my embouchure to be able to play that trombone. He said, I've lost all feeling, but I've got to record the next song. He said, I became, I was pressing that horn against my mouth so hard to try to get uh, the, the right sound for the recording. He said, by the end of that six months, he said, my two front teeth were like swinging doors. My gums had been so damaged. I've been pressing so hard and the, the, the cocaine had done such damage damage to his face. He said, look, the world just wastes you. I'm probably preaching to some people who have come out of that. But for any young person in this world, in this church tonight, if the world has ever had any allurement to you, it's because you don't know what it really is. It takes and wastes and destroys. The devil's main purpose in life is to destroy. That's what he is. That's who he is. To kill, to to steal, and to destroy. That's all he does. You give him some time and he will destroy. And that's what the boy here experienced. He'd experienced the wasted life of giving himself to the world. And he finally, verse 15, he went because there's a, or verse 14, when he'd spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want, he began to be in need. He had, he'd spent all his money and he had nobody there to support him. You know, if you're living the party life and you have a lot of money, you'll find that your money buys you a lot of friends, so-called friends, but in time of need, none of them are friends. And the man, after wasting it all, discovers he's in need and there's no one that will take care of him except for one. And the man says, go feed my pigs. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, to a Jewish boy, pigs were unclean. You didn't, you didn't have anything to do with pigs. And so there he is in the pig pen, feeding the pigs, and he gets to such a point, when the famine comes, he gets to such a point that he realizes the pigs are eating better than I, and finally in verse 17, I love this phrase, and when he came to himself, that final place of coming and realizing his eyes were open, God got a hold of his attention, he began to realize, what am I doing? If you're praying for a wayward child, if you're praying for a wayward grandchild, if you're praying for someone to get saved, that's what you're praying for. That the Spirit would bring them to the place where they come to themselves. And there, this is what I find fascinating. Look with me in verse 17. He remembers his father. Because that's, again, that's what we're focusing on tonight is who the father is. At this point, he has so wasted everything. He is so undeserving of forgiveness. He's so unlikely to receive forgiveness. In verse 17, he remembers. And when he came to himself, he said, "Ah, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Do you see what's happening? He remembers the goodness of his father, but he doesn't know the depth of the goodness of his father. Because he remembers, I'm pretty sure if I went back to dad, his hired servants, the guys that work for dad, they live pretty well. And I'm pretty sure my dad is good enough that he would at least take me back as an employee. He remembered that much of his father's goodness. But he didn't know how good his father really was. Brothers and sisters, have you found yourself in that same position? You know, I know God is good. And I'm pretty sure that if I went back to him and groveled in the dirt and humbled myself, he'd at least let me be a second-class citizen. But we've forgotten the very character, the very nature of who God is. He's not interested in second-class children. He's not interested in red-headed stepchild. He's interested in children. And so the boy begins to rehearse. His apology. Have you been there as a child? Remember that? You know you're about to get in trouble, so you rehearse the exact verbiage of how you're going to apologize to make sure it's good. And I believe he was sincere here as he comes before his father and he accurately recognizes, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. So I do believe this is a sincere apology. So there, verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, look, look how far the son gets into his confession. The son said unto, the, unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son but the father. You see where he's cut him off? He cut him off at the consequences. He let him confess because that is right and that is just. He needs to acknowledge his sin. But dad wouldn't let him finish with the consequences because dad had other consequences prepared. It's called restoration. Amen. And the father hears his confession but cuts him off and says, Bring forth a robe and put it on him. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither, uh, bring hither the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began be Mary. Church family, my desire tonight is, this, is that you would see your Heavenly Father. See, it burdens me that some of us have come to church and we've gotten to know who God is supposed to be, and yet in our heart, who God is and who God's supposed to be are two different people. I was talking to a man a couple years ago. It was about two years ago. We were outside of our apartment building. This is back when we had an apartment and. He had pulled in with his vehicle and he's a guy that had just moved into the apartment building and I wanted to get a chance to talk to him. And so I went up to him and, and I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, hey, my name's, he shared his name and I can't remember what it is now. And we, we started small talking and, and uh, he, he tells me that he's grown up in America, but he is now trying to convert to Islam. And so he's starting to tell me all about his Muslim faith. And, and so I'm trying to share with him the gospel. And he made this statement. He says, well, you know, you and I, we have the same God. And I I knew that is not right. We don't have the same God who Allah is and who my God is are two different people. And I wasn't completely sure how to answer him and the the conversation kind of fizzled at that point. It didn't go very far. But as I began to ruminate on it later, I began to think there's no way your God and my God can be the same God. That's not just a a way of, of trying to get out of that conversation. No, there is no, logically your God and my God can't be the same person. Think about it. Who is Allah? Allah is known to be a God of violence. He's known to be someone who is who domineering, who requires you better pray every time, uh, every day, multiple times a day. And if you miss one prayer, I'm going to judge you. That's who he is. You say, I'm not sure about that. You, do, you ought to talk to Michael Jeremy. He's been here before. He can tell you who Allah is. And, and, and I'm beginning to think about this. Okay, Allah is, is he's angry. Allah is, is uh, uh, violent. Allah is, uh, requires a penance to come to him. Allah and my God can't be the same gods because my God that hates violence. My God loves mercy. My God is forgiveness. Logically, your God and my God can't be the same God. It would be like if that guy came up to me and says, hey, I saw your dad yesterday. And I would say, you saw my dad yesterday? Yeah, I saw your dad. I said, there's no way. My dad's in Maine. We're in Wisconsin. No, no, I saw your dad yesterday. So I would say, well, what what did he look like? Well, explain it to me. What what was he like? Oh, he was about six foot two. Uh, He had a a black hair parted there in the middle, glasses, rippling muscles. And I would say, well, I'm glad you think that we look alike. I I appreciate that part. but, but But my dad's five foot eight, has a little bit of a belly, gray hair, glasses, not rippling with muscles. And what I would logically conclude is, who you thought was my dad... And who my dad is are not the same people. Okay, sometimes who we think God is and who God is are two different people. And we need to get our thinking realigned because this father was not sitting on the front step of the porch waiting for the son to get before him and declare all of his grievance and declare his consequences and then dad stew on it a little while and say give me 24 hours and I'll think about it that's not who he is and yet that's who you think your father is sometimes who this father is is he standing on the edge porch just waiting every day I'm looking at the crest of the hill if my son would just come over the crest of the hill I'll run for him he looks out there every day On Monday, he's looking. And on Tuesday, he's looking. The first month goes by. The second month goes by. Third month goes by. He's a father, and that's his son. He is not giving up on him. And there he sees him. I recognize that gate. I recognize that walk. And he takes off running. Very uncharacteristic for a Palestinian man of any kind of wealth. And he takes off running. It doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't matter what, hey, you guys seeing the old man? What's he doing? He gone loco? No, I have gone in love because I want to forgive someone. That's who your father is. He's not only pursuing to draw you back, he's pursuing you to forgive you. You know the son allowed dad to forgive him? There's two types of people that will never go to heaven. The unbeliever and the proud. The unbeliever is the one that doesn't think Jesus could save him and the proud is the one who won't let Jesus save him. There's two types of Christians that stay out of fellowship with Jesus. The unbeliever and the proud. The one that does not think that Jesus is good enough to forgive him and the one who doesn't want to be forgiven. Yeah. You know how many times we find ourselves thinking, but Lord, let me, let me, let me make sure you know I really am an earnest Christian. Let me go down forward to the altar and, and make sure you really know, I mean it this time, I know I broke it, but next time I won't do it. God, let me do three weeks of devotions. Let me go, I'll go soul winning three weeks in a row. Oh, Lord, I'll do prayer time three weeks in a row. And then maybe once I've worked up my track record so it looks good, then I'll let myself be forgiven. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm looking for. Because you think you've got something to do with it. I want to lavish my prodigal forgiveness on you when you you don't deserve it because then it proves how much I love you. For every man in this room who is a father, do do you remember the feeling you had when that firstborn, your first child was put into your arms? And the overwhelming love you had for that child? If you love your child that much and yet you feel that God can't love you that much, that means you're a better father than he is, and that's blasphemy. If you are a father in this room, if you're a mother in this room, you know the feeling of longing. Look, I, when, when, when my two children, while well, Ginger is too young, well, she's, she's young enough to sin, but I, we, don't have, we haven't got to that point yet, but, but Gilbert, two and a half, he's old enough to, to, to be disobedient. I do not put him on the couch and say, we're going to think about this for six hours until you prove to me that you really want to be a good son. I'm longing. I, I love that kid more than he knows. I'm longing to show him my forgiveness. When we have a, a, a situation of discipline, I administer the discipline, and he there dries his tears, and he says, "Daddy, I'm sorry, would you forgive me?" I'm saying, "Yes, I couldn't wait for you to ask." And he still starts to weep, and he gets off my lap. I will not let him leave the room because I want him. We're not leaving this room until you know, Daddy and you we're good." I'm not letting you continue to cry. I'll take my thumbs and wipe away his tears. You fathers have done the exact same thing. Wipe away his tears because I want you to know it's okay. You're forgiven. Everything's good now. You don't have to earn it. In fact, I want to leave this room laughing. Not proving uh, I won't do it next time. You don't have to do that. I love you. I forgave you. See, that's who your father is. The Psalms. I actually read it in my, in my devotions this morning, but I want to read it so I get the exact uh, quote here. Psalm 86: For the Lord, for Thou Lord art good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon Thee. Nehemiah 9: Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Church family, God is not looking for an opportunity to shun you. He's itching for an opportunity to forgive. Because that's who he is. Amen, amen. If we were, uh, if if, if uh, I'm trying to think, who's the who's the most dainty lady like room lady in the room? Um, I'm not sure, but um, let's just imagine. Okay, sister, what, what's your name? Miss Miss Pat. Miss Pat. Right now in the service, if you looked down and saw a snake slithering across, across your feet, what would you do? Put your feet up. Okay. Okay. All right. Is there anybody, any lady in the room that would say, man, I would let out a scream. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd let out a scream. Okay. Okay. Brother Dan would say, okay. Very good. <laughs> so the truth is we're all sitting here tonight. We, we, we look, we look fine. We look nice. We're sitting here, stayed and conservative. Very, 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 uh, you know, just very nice. But if a rat or a mouse or a snake or something, for some of you, a worm, I mean, for some of you, it's great. But anyways, if it, if it crawled across your feet, no matter how dainty you're trying to look, if that thing crawled across your feet, <laughs> you, you would do it instinctively, wouldn't you? Some of the ladies would, okay, maybe some of the guys. But you would do it instinctively. It, it, you wouldn't even have a chance to think about it. You wouldn't have a chance to think, okay, now I am a good church member. I shall not scream, no, who you are, the fear of snakes, is going to come out. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Here's what the scripture is telling us. Who God is, he's ready to pardon. Give him an opportunity. It's like it's, it, grace. If you Look all through the Old Testament. Every time the Old, the old Testament saints blow it. God, is, God, God can't help himself. You humble yourself. It's my knee-jerk reaction. I forgive and give mercy. Because that's who I am. You ever heard the phrase, um, we're going to find out what you're made of? You ever heard that phrase? Sometimes you'll hear in the military uh, a context, uh, maybe it would be the Seals or the Green Berets or something like that. You'll, you, uh, their, their desire is to get to the very core of a man. Okay? Uh, in the Navy Seals training, there's uh, the, the attrition rate, the, the fallout rate is something like 76, 78%. So if they get a group of 100 guys, they're looking to whittle it down, and, it's, and, and the, the average rate is they'll only end with about 22 guys out of 100. And that's by design because they're trying to strip away every boy who's doing it because they think the girls are going to like a Navy SEAL. They're trying to strip away any guy who's going to fail on the battlefield because he doesn't have it mentally. They're trying to strip away anything that any guy could lean on and they want to find out what are you made of. And so that's what they do. During hell week they, they take away everything. They take away comforts. They take away clothing. They take away warmth. They take away everything. They take away sleep, food, and they put you through torment because they want to find out at the very core of who you are when everything has been stripped away, your friends, your family, your Facebook, everything, when it's all gone and we get down to who you are, we want to know what's coming out. Okay, they find out what they're made of. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, everything had been stripped. We've seen paintings and they put him in a loincloth, but he wasn't in a loincloth. Part of the shaming was to strip him naked. He hung there after all of his followers that he had treated for 33 years with great, or with, excuse me, with three, for three and a half years with great love, they've abandoned him. It, 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 the, the religious leaders have accused him, and his prized possession, the relationship between he and his father, his father turns on him. He's been put through an excruciating pain. He's hanging there in agony. Pain reveals who a person is. Bang your head on the, uh, the uh, kitchen cabinet and it reveals who you are, right? Pain reveals who you are. And you know what came out of Jesus? Father, forgive them. Amen. That blows me away. Amen. But that's who God is. It's his very nature. It's it's the core being of who he is. Brothers and sisters, if you're you're living in sin right now or living in an unconfessed state because you're nervous about God's forgiveness, you need to realize you've got a warped view of who God is because that's not your Jesus. Because who Jesus is, is prodigal forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read it again, again because I'm not going to be able to quote it right. In Ephesians chapter 4, the scripture gives us a list of, of reasons, uh, w- w- sins to deal with. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, we're all familiar with that passage, but there's two phrases, two wordings that fascinate me. For Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So the understanding here, for Christ's sake, what God is saying is, what what, what the scripture is revealing to us is, God is saying, that person who has hurt you, the person who has, has been unkind to you, the person who has mistreated you, God is telling you, I've already forgiven them. So for my sake... Would you forgive them too? You say, but Lord, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they've treated me. Lord, you don't know how they've made me feel inhuman. Lord, you don't know the way they backbit me. Lord, that's a believer. They're not supposed to do that. Lord, you don't know. And the Lord says, for my sake, I've already forgiven them. Think at church. Christ Every sin of this world has been forgiven. Now, some men do not live in forgiveness because they will not take the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But every sinner who has sinned against God, Jesus has already said, I've taken care of the sin if you'll humble yourself. So from Christ's perspective, he's saying, I've provided forgiveness. You are forgiven if you would but take it. So when we come to him with a hurt, Jesus is saying, they hurt me too. And I've forgiven So for Christ's sake, would you forgive too? But he doesn't finish there. Not only for Christ's sake, he says, for Christ's sake, he's forgiven you. He's forgiven me. Do you ever find yourself feeling, well, but Lord, I'm more forgivable. Lord, I'm I'm much more uh, uh, put together. I'm easier to forgive than so-and-so. We would be helped by taking some time to just reminisce on the ugliness and the sinfulness of our heart before we got saved. We would be helped if we would take some time and just realize what kind of a sinner we are outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to have an accurate portrayal of who I am, it changes your perspective on somebody else and you can begin to enter into with joy to the work of Christ in forgiveness. I want to conclude here with this. You're familiar with the old hymn Hallelujah, I have found him. Think about these words. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Hallelujah, I found him. Not it, I found him. Whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through thy blood I now am saved. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure Pastor Ingram has mentioned this. We do not gather here together to be religious. We do not gather here together to be spiritual. We don't gather here together to be conservative. We gather here together to know Christ. I I was listening to a message by A.W. Tozer today, and it fascinated me because when I think of A.W. Tozer, I think of a great man of faith, and he says, Man, he said, I hate people who are religious. He said I have since I was 18 years old started being a preacher. He said I've actually tried not to sound like a preacher because I don't want and he was growing up in a day when formalism was everything. He said, "Look, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to know Christ." When you begin to know who God is, you accept the lavish forgiveness without trying to convince him that you're forgivable without trying to lay on yourself the, the, the consequences that you think justly I deserve so to make me more forgivable. Because <laughs> Lord, if I go through these consequences, then I could understand how you could forgive me because I paid for it. And the Lord's saying, stop trying to pay for it. I already paid for it. You're forgiven because of my work, not because of yours. Amen. Some of us in this room need to stop taking three days to humble ourselves and accept the fact that a forgiving God wants restoration in a moment. You don't have to wait for Sunday when the altar is open. You don't have to wait until you get home and have a chance to talk to your wife, though that is necessary and helpful. You can have restoration immediately. You can have forgiveness immediately and then you don't have to live in the pig pen for the rest of the day trying to make sure you really feel forgiven. When you begin to understand who God is, forgiveness is what pours from him. Brothers and sisters, might you need to access some forgiveness tonight? Not convincing God, not pleading with God, just letting him forgive you. Maybe some of us in this room need to give some forgiveness by remembering How much I have been forgiven, so for Christ's sake, we will forgive. Can I ask you all to bow your heads with me tonight? Close your eyes.